Welcome to a new episode of Your Friendly Physicist and Other Nerds. I'm Lucas, the host of this podcast, and I'm in conversation with scientists all around the world that help to create the world we live in today and tomorrow. Together we take a close look at trends in cutting-edge technology, explain how the smallest things influence the big, and generally talk nerdy stuff. So stay tuned if you are a newbie to physics and interested to learn about the world of friendly scientists or if you are up for a PhD-worthy nerd talk. Today we have a very exciting guest. Her name is Valérie André. She's a physicist, worked then for the big chemistry company BASF. By now she's retired. And part of her job was to bridge the gap between industry and academia. I'm very looking forward to this episode. Welcome, Valerie, and good morning. Good morning. I'm, I'm very, very happy that you joined me on the show. I hope you're doing all right. Yes, I am. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pleasure. Uh, before we start, I would like to introduce you shortly. You did your PhD at the uh, Université Paris et Marie Curie in Paris yes. before you then moved to Germany and you joined the uh, BASF company. So it's a chemistry company and I think it's one of the biggest companies in Germany, mm -hmm. um, maybe even worldwide. So I, I looked it up before the recording. It's over 100,000 employees and it's it's big industry, big chemistry, I would say. So they produce uh, all kinds of stuff. So petrochemicals, uh, monomers uh, for agriculture, coatings, resins, catalysts. I think the list mm -hmm. is quite long. Very long. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You then became a developer of sunscreen filters in the marketing cosmetics. And after that, a senior manager uh, for scouting and strategy. And th there, as a senior manager, you served as a bridging link between the BASF, so big industry and academia, so research institutes and universities. And this is actually what interests me a lot and I hope the listeners as well. So how was your uh, experience or, or how does it work being between industry and academia, what main challenges this brings, how to find a common language, a common timescale and so on. And this is where I would like to talk to you for the next, let's say 30, 35 minutes. Okay. Cool. Uh, but starting maybe at the beginning, so we heard you did your PhD in, in Paris, and then you joined the BSF, um, which is, I think, a quite drastic change going from from <laughs> academia, from from lab style research, then to to a, a big company like BSF. What were exactly the reasons for this decision back then? Yes, so the reasons are, were for me at the time very easy as um, at probably halfway through my PhD, I decided that I definitely wanted to start my career in research, but I wanted to start my career in the industry. And the reasons for that uh, were twofold. First of all, we had um, a professor who was leading our unit who was constantly, I would say, almost complaining about the fact that he couldn't do any research, but he was only busy chasing money. Mm -hmm. And that upset him a lot. Um, that was quite an interesting experience. And then um, what you maybe not know today, um, in the 90s, and particularly in the 80s, the large companies worldwide who were 
either oil companies or chemistry companies were very visible in publications. All of them had very large research centers. Most of them have disappeared in the meantime. So we knew exactly that these large companies were doing research and that they were doing good research because they were publishing. So that was for me a reason to apply to large companies and also for some reason, although we were very busy in the field of more physical chemistry or physical um, topics, we knew BSF, we knew Hoechst, which has disappeared. Um, we knew the papers by Dupont, by Dow Chemicals. So <clears throat> this was very present in our day-to-day research. And that's the reason why I applied, I applied to BSF, among other companies. Okay. When I was almost done with my PhD. Yeah, yeah I think this changed uh, by now. I think these big companies, they are still visible, but they are not publishing as much, I would say, as back then in the 90s, 80s. Yes, and I think, and, and indeed, some of them closed their laboratories mm-hmm. I mean, completely. So they, they, okay. they simply disappeared. So BSF still publishes a lot. Um, we still have um, uh, research. But if you look at some companies, they simply either they have disappeared and merged and mm-hmm. reduced their units. But this was a different situation, as I say. Okay. Okay. And uh, your first expression when you started then in this big company, how hard was it to adapt to, let's say, industry standards coming from from university? Well, I don't remember having a hard time with that part. Because first of all, as strange as it might seem, I immediately like the campus in Ludwigshafen. So you were mentioning this, BSF Mm -hmm. is uh, the biggest um, chemical company in Germany and has the largest uh, industrial site in one piece belonging to one company so far and um, I I liked the the site very much I liked the fact that you were given a lot of possibilities this was a very nice change coming from the university where we did have a good uh, position in our lab and we had nice equipments um, and money to do research, but when I came to Ludwigshafen, this was this was the real the real shock that all the uh, methods that you could think of were available, um, except maybe for neutrons. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you could really you could really do a lot. And the internal customers that I had, which were colleagues in other divisions, mm-hmm. expected you to have the state of the art for the methods. Yeah. So for me. At that time, the shock was more cultural than in, in other areas uh, than industry academia. Okay, but it was then a positive shock, probably, if you were... This was, a po- this was yeah. really a positive shock, yeah. 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 <laughs> Having access to it, I mean, it sounds like a, like a, <laughs> a scientist's dream to have access to all the newest equipment. <laughs> Yes, and to also have access, and I think this is still unknown today, to have access to people who had been working on topics Mm -hmm. for many years and who knew exactly what was going on in the world of science. Today, this is a little bit more complicated because you have thousands of papers coming out every day. But at the time, um, it was really 
easier in, in many ways because you knew exactly who was working in which field and this on a world scale. So mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. if you were asked who is the specialist for modification of surfaces um, at the le molecular level or who is doing the best polymers to do this and that, my colleagues would always know. So this, mm -hmm. this is really, uh, and this is still the case, of course, in, in specialized area, but this was a completely, um, it was very interesting to, to, to have this experience mm -hmm. of always having somebody able to answer your questions. Okay. Yeah, I can imagine uh, also in industry, there is not so much fluctuation than in academia. So people who work at BISF probably stay there for longer times and can build up a real expertise and then also can transfer <clears throat> their expertise to a new coworker like you back at the time. Yes, and it, and particularly also because uh, that's probably one of the major differences uh, between academia and industry. If you you are working in the industry on problems that need to be solved, and they need to be solved in a certain amount of time, so this is very okay can vary, but mm -hmm. you have you do have deadlines at some point, and if you if you lose your know how too often, you cannot reach these targets. So mm -hmm. it is fundamental to keep some of the know-how uh, in, in, in the structure. Mm -hmm. And it is always, of course, a little bit of a challenge. You need to be fast, but you still need to be reliable. So that's a balance that has to be kept. And this is supported by the quality of your, of your co-workers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then you were <clears throat> working together with a lot of physicists? Or engineers, chemists. I was in the. I was in the. So I was in the polymer physics department. So basically, this was half physicist, half mm -hmm. physical chemist, and I'm more on the physical chemist side, to be honest. Um, and we were working with chemists a lot because the chemists were still the majority of the um, of the um, workforce in BSF. I think we still have a. Maybe this has increased a little bit, but we had like 100 physicists at the time for the whole uh, company. Um, and you have much more uh, engineers, of course, mm -hmm. and chemists. So we worked with, with um, many of them who came to us uh, with questions. So that's the way it worked. People came and said, I have this product. I want to know the properties. Could you please me measure this? Or in some cases, they came with a problem that they had identified and they wanted to discuss with us how we could solve the problem or at least part of it because most of the time we only solve a part of it mm -hmm. and we discussed which method would be best adapted for the question okay okay so how, how large were the teams that you worked on really depended really depended so i was a project leader um several years on the development of a pigment an organic pigment, and this was a team of 15 to 17 people mm -hmm. <clears throat> in different areas. And sometimes you have, you may have a team of 60 people or, you know, this is very, it depends completely on the subject, also on the budget, of course, and mm -hmm. the timeline. Mm -hmm. So this, there is no uh, one answer fits all for this because you really have to adapt to this particular situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And now with these great problem-solving teams, yeah, sometimes they are smaller, sometimes they are larger, they are interdisciplinary. What exactly is now the reason 
you work together with universities and research institutes. The reason is really you need constantly to have new ideas. Mm -hmm. okay. So when you have been working three to five years on one topic, the danger that you still think um, the same way or you only think of the ideas that your ideas are going to be the right ones, this is a high risk that you start, you know, just not being open enough. That's very human. That's not specific to any industry. That's just a thing that happened. Mm -hmm. And so by talking to people in a different environment and allowing them to have ideas, this is how you can then adapt your ideas to your to your specific uh, projects. And it doesn't always work. Um, so you will start collaborations with universities or with other companies sometimes and just, and some of them work and some of them fail, mm -hmm. but that's, that's part of the game and that's, that's perfectly okay. okay but it's cool. really about hearing different point of view on topics. And you are then approaching institutes that you find interesting or come the institutes to you yeah. and say, okay, it's this way around. Both. So it's, it's both ways. Okay. So BSF has had in, in the whole history of BSF, we have had contacts with, with university. In fact, the first director of research at BSF was hired by Friedrich Engelhorn and came from the university. And he, at the time he said he, he was not a chemist himself. Mm -hmm. He said he needs a chemist to, to lead research. So this started the very first research department of BASF. And this has been a tradition since that we've always had very, very, um, I would say, strong relationship with universities, mm -hmm. different ones worldwide. In the meantime, extended to, to Asia, for example, in a different way than it was in the past. Yeah. But yeah. it was always... This is the company philosophy to have contacts with universities or with external partners. Okay. And how, <clears throat> how do the projects then look like? Yeah. Well, what we usually try to do is, first of all, to show the uh, academia or the university group, we show them what BSF uh, is in a nutshell. So we mm -hmm. inform people about some of the major topics that we're working on because these are published things. And so it's not, it's not a secret. And we also usually need to, to show again the, uh, the, 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 yes, the large um, topics that we have. And then we give them the opportunity to tell us what they're good at. So normally, we, we, prior to such meetings, we always had an idea about the people we were going to meet. And there are very many, many ways of cooperation. So you can work together on a three-year project, typically with a PhD, or you can also hire a master's student for smaller projects, mm -hmm. because this, but this has to be at least six months of work normally, because anything shorter is very, is a little bit more difficult um, because it's too short. Mm -hmm. And then you can also have very specific cooperations on a given topic where they um, yes, say, well, look for me for, for new molecules and you have a project um, money. And that's more what we call um, a sort of research contract where we um, more outsource to, to come back to what you were saying before. So we, we, we give the, the university 
a topic and say, well, let's look at all the molecules that would do this. And then people okay. will do the work for a certain amount of time and give us a report. But that's not the same, same way of cooperation then. Mm-hmm. It's more, um, we give them money and they gave us data. Okay. These are then rather smaller projects. So you're working together with one PhD student or with one master student on a given topic. When we work with a PhD, it's always mm-hmm. a collaboration because the PhD student has to be able to publish the, mm-hmm. the work in the end. And this also includes views and meetings um, and such things. And how, yeah. how, how does it work, for example, with a PhD student? So they are collaborating then with with industry and i can imagine there are quite big differences regarding timeline or um, deadlines or pragmatism yeah bsf wants to solve problems yes but we choose the topics that we give to a phd student so mm-hmm. that the phd student has a chance to do something i mean you cannot you cannot give um a PhD student a topic that is completely impossible to work on within three years that would mm-hmm. not be fair So you just, from the beginning, you have um, a project line Mm -hmm. and you know for for sure that this is not going to end with a a product in the end. That's not the idea. The idea is really to to look into a topic and see, okay, if this person works three years on it, what happens in the end? Do we have something substantial that we can keep working on it? Or was it just uh, opening a new perspective for something else? You don't know from the beginning. Mm-hmm. but this is something that you you decide to do and you need like in any project you need to give people a framework and um, have project meetings um, I've, I've seen that myself we, we just go to the university meet the professors meet the student make sure that uh, everything is fine and uh, whenever um, difficulties come then you need to be prepared okay so it's a meeting in the middle between academia and industry so maybe just one element that is fundamental and it unfortunately sometimes difficult to make clear from the beginning of a relationship. The first challenge is to establish a proper contract. And um, normally what I have heard as a scientist um, many, many times in the SF is, oh, I'm a scientist, I don't know anything about contracts. But that is exactly why I had this role uh, at mm-hmm. BSF being a person doing the liaison between academia and our company. The contract is fundamental because it sets what you're going to do, but particularly also what you are not going to do. You have to be really trained into putting the things you need into a contract and also explaining exactly what is going to happen if, for example, um, suddenly the machine breaks down and the student cannot carry any experiments what happens then? So are you going to offer a replacement solution? Is the student going to be able to work somewhere else? You need to think of all these things and put them simply in the contract and make sure that both parties know where the limitations are. It's really fun to, once you have worked on on these things a few times, to you recognize immediately where potential mistakes can come. So that doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes, but at least you're better prepared. Um, and it's it's really quite cool to be able to identify the points where you say, okay, this needs to be done now or this needs to be discussed now. And particularly when you have a student, um, people are young and they don't have the experience necessarily. So you need to, to make sure that everybody is 
on the same page. Do you think this is in particular important when you don't speak like a common language? Yeah. Well, you, in fact, when you discuss the contract, you will discuss the elements as well. Mm -hmm. But then you see how much um, differences might, might exist and you're better prepared. And this is really something that's not typical for only academia industry. I think this is, this is a typical uh, situation for two areas of activities that are different. That might think differently. Yeah, and I can also imagine you save a lot of time. Yeah, prepared. and going back to going back to your your point, um, it's very interesting that our colleagues internally very often complained about the fact that we were too slow in setting up contracts, which of course happened. But I think that many times we had to wait for the university to answer to our requests. That was the most difficult part that because they were not used to it. Every time you start something new, people yeah. will need more time. So we had the contract drafted uh, in, in, a few, in, in, in a few hours. My lawyer was extremely quick and he said, okay, so we can send this as a first proposal. And then it took really a long time. Pe people are insecure when, they, when things are new. They want to be sure that it's going to work. Yeah, and especially when and it this comes, we have to understand. Yeah, especially when it comes yeah. to, to legal contracts and and stuff like this. Actually, this is the first time I'm I'm hearing this uh, that you have uh, mm -hmm. like a real contract between the company and the industry, which covers also like what you mentioned. Yeah, what what happens when an instrument breaks down? Yeah, like a, a risk assessment and stuff like this. No, but you don't need. Oh, okay, but a risk assessment sounds like a huge a huge thing. But it sometimes it's only adding one line. In the contract, yeah, and I think and in the contract, it's, thought about it. Yeah, in the contract, it's only one line. But thinking about this already brings you so much ah, further yeah. in, in in your in in your actual research because you are aware of all these, let's yeah. say, risks or possibilities that can happen. And it, I think you mm -hmm. you're more aware of you, you can zoom out and see a bigger picture and can connect the the lines better because you are thinking from different perspectives. Of, perspectives about your project and i think this is a real advantage in the end for the for the phd student who is doing the work yeah. but also for BISF as a company yes and also when you start discussing these elements you see if there is indeed a good match between mm -hmm. the two partners because yeah. most of the time as human beings you are prone to think positively i mean most of the time and so you want to start something and then you realize whether this is going to work or not and it's better to realize this during this phase then once the contract has been signed and you realize this is not yeah. going to work. Yeah, but most of the time, this is a good good, good um, system to, to make sure that you're going to be fine. Yeah, cool. How many projects do you have with, um, with institutes or with universities? Or how many PhD oh. students are working with, with BISF? Oh, I have no idea about the number today. So it's, it's, it's not only academia. This includes companies working for us for specific tasks um, of analytics, for example, or something like this, or uh, this includes external other industrial partners. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But we do have a large network. I think it's published in our um, business report every year. There is a world map with the larger hubs of research of BISF. So we have them, of course, now in Asia and China particularly, but also Uh, in North America and in Europe, okay. strongest, of course, still in Germany. Cool. How's the feedback of the PhD students about these projects when they finish? Hmm. 
I cannot tell you about the feedback of all the PhD students. I can only speak about the ones that I knew. And mm. normally this was something that went really well. But like I said, I have a very small, small view on this. But uh, we also have hired PhD students that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, or we hire uh, also once in a while a postdoc student, depending on the topic and how people are, you know, on the plans are, generally speaking. So... But um, my overall view was was fairly positive, but I cannot tell you about all of them. That's for sure. Yeah, uh, during my PhD in the physics department in, in Munich, um, I met one or two students that worked at Osram, uh, this this mm-hmm. um, um, light company, optics company. Um, yeah, uh, I know Osram. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe some of the listeners don't. They were uh, talking about this quite positively as well. Because I think it's nice yeah, to have yeah, normally uh, I'd say. yeah to to have like this of course you, you still do fundamental research but you have still the connection to industry and to a pragmatic problem solving solving real world problems uh, which is uh, adding a certain amount of motivation and purpose to your study and and this yeah, is but it's so... also very personal I mean um, Lucas it's very personal because I had yeah, yeah, a yeah, friend um, who who did the postdoc BSF years and years ago, and who is really um, a fundamental researcher to the core. And 22 years later, she is working in California with a, um, at the University of, of California, and she still is as passionate as she was 20 years ago about the molecules that mm-hmm. she's synthesizing every day. And I have to say, for her, she was not yeah. clearly not. It's a it's a personal thing. People have, and she had a really good time at the SF. She she remembers fondly this time, and she says, for her, it was the eye opener that industry is not what she wants, and that's perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. You like it or you don't. Like I said, I I like the the campus from the first day. I cannot even tell you why. <laughs> it's the way it was. <laughs> I like the pipes and the tubes, the big columns. Yeah, I can. I, Huge I, reactors. I can. I can relate. <laughs> I mean, when when I when yeah. I was in in high school uh, t- and doing my abitur, I I applied at BASF for a dual stood for do, doing a dual studies, so working yeah. there and and okay. and I went there to Ludwigshafen and I got the tour around the campus and was quite quite nice. Oh yeah, that was that was cool. Yeah, and trust me, do it do it at night. It's even better. <laughs> Without the lights, yeah, yeah, it's it's, yes. it's a cool thing, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, but like I said, either you you feel like this or not. Yeah, abs- yeah, as you said, it's yeah. a personal thing. So only my impression from yeah. from the last semesters, uh, I, when I giving lectures, and uh, a lot of students um, came to me afterwards and said, "Hey, can we do a master thesis here or a bachelor thesis there?" Um, and I said, of course, topic is like this, this and this. And they said, yeah, but what problem in the real world does this solve? Or when does it go into application? And uh, I have the feeling that this becomes uh, a bit more dominant, I would say. Yes. Okay. But I would be very careful on that as well. Because if you look at the major, major inventions that are fundamental today, and I, I, I bring this example uh, mm. all the time I, in the past when I when I gave my talks at universities or even within BASF about 
the role of physics, for example, in, in our world today. Um, when um, the inventor of the laser found this, had the idea to apply his work, that he was working in, for the army, I think, on radio frequencies, and said, well, what I'm looking at might work with light, but he had no ways to, to check this. And said, oh, yeah, well, maybe people could, could use this principle with light. And I think this was 1964, something like that. Mm -hmm. So if we, if, if these people, so this is, um, this is for the laser, but th there are many other applications that were found by people doing fundamental research, not even being able to verify their calculations, which proved mm -hmm. to be true later. If you stop this, or if you do not support this fundamental aspect, you will also not have applications later. I think there's a big danger in many, many ways to, to reduce research to, to short time thinking. This is really a problem. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, you need to be a little bit more maybe focused and say, okay, I cannot work 10 years on this. I need a solution in three years. And let's, let's put um, money into it and move. But in some other areas, um, you need to, to give people the freedom to think differently and to think maybe without having a, a, uh, an application that they may not see, but that may come later because of course translation is so important yeah, yeah. in research yeah, if you don't have this translation aspect you lose a lot i think i will include your your story when i talk to to my students the next time because it's a very good argument and i for example i love fundamental research and i think it's already enough motivation to yeah. to spend yeah. research or spend money or or time or in a certain topic only because you find it interesting and you want to understand Absolutely. it. And because you never know what comes out of it in the end, maybe in five, maybe yeah. in 10 years. And indeed, the biggest um, weakness that one can have in research is when people lose their curiosity and when they lose their passion for finding new things. If, if, and, and you cannot force people to be a fundamental researcher or a non-fundamental researcher. You should just let yeah. them think. Yeah, Let yeah. them think their, their, their own way. Otherwise, this is the beginning of the end. You cannot force human beings to, to do things unless you terrorize them. That's a different topic. Um, yeah. but it, and there is no good and bad research indeed. So either it fits you and you're happy, or it doesn't, and then you should be doing something else. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the biggest, uh, I think, sometimes how spoiled I was when I was young because I remember always um, doing the things that I liked and this is such a privilege mm -hmm. and you don't realize it when you're young you just think it's normal but then late, later you realize I never asked myself what I was going to do I, and I studied at the time my PhD in France where everybody was telling us you have to remember this is the 90s so it's a big big phase for the finance world and some of my friends were studying economics and they told me, hey, we're not going to use scientists or need scientists anymore. Anyone is going to disappear because we're going to do it all with virtual money. That was the message. <laughs> so I 
Episode and it's like, hmm, okay, how does that work? Um, <laughs> Apparently it doesn't. You know what? And we have this, we, yeah, and, and, the, and the funny part is we had these people, I will never forget this, at the very uh, beginning of my PhD, one of the last lecture, um, we had the professor said, well, these guys are coming from this uh, very prestigious commerce school in France and they want to convince you to also do a complementary study. And this is exactly the message these people were giving us. So if you're, you're a scientist, we don't know how to handle you really well, but if you could come to do some more studies and we just listen to them. And I remember thinking, okay, uh, hopefully they're going to be done soon enough so I can go and have my tea. Yeah, that, that was my reaction. Uh, we were very much protected in terms of um, things that were taking off the focus of what we wanted to do. There was That's probably the only thing I think is a bit sad about internet and of, of the flood of information that you have that mm -hmm. really um, makes you insecure in some ways and you don't know in which direction you're going to go. We, we didn't have that. Yeah, the, the, the so. numbers of possibilities uh, is... Quite, can be quite overwhelming, the fear of... Yes, and in deciding. fact, it's, it's a fake. Yeah, and it's a fake because the numbers of possibilities you have are always limited, and they should be. Yeah. Right, yeah. because there are so many things you can do or you want to do, so this limits it to usually one or two, and that's it. I think that being a scientist helps you in many ways um, to have interest in, in solving complex problems, so you're usually not afraid by complexity. Um, that's a big advantage to, um, to move into this highly complex environment. All of the colleagues working in the, in the industry, yeah. uh, particularly, like I said, in a very regulated environment where you have to make sure that you know exactly which laws are going to come next mm -hmm. and how is this going to impact your project. Um, I remember being in London with my lawyer for one of the first contracts we did with Imperial College and the person in front of us was completely shocked because my colleague already knew about the uh, upcoming next European law which had not been completely published yet. Okay. And I think that this gives you also, uh, yes, because they were asked regularly to, to review things and to... Um, you know, they have to be, they had to be informed about everything. And so yeah. that's what I mean as being, um, working in a complex environment. I think it's, it's big help if you have gone through the hardcore scientist uh, school, but you def you definitely otherwise know, you learn it. Yeah, you definitely know after a PhD that you better be prepared. It makes life way yeah. easier. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, but um, maybe finishing up the, the, the discussion we had the last 10 minutes with you saying, I mean, follow your interests, follow your passions, um, maybe also mm -hmm. a bit touching these, uh, let's, you call it fake uh, options uh, or fake possibilities that you have a limited set of, of possibilities that you can, from which you can choose. And this is actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I agree uh, yeah. with, you, with yeah. you on that. What would your best advices or, or tips be to a young scientist? And does not know if, if uh, a work in industry or maybe stay in, in academia is the right choice. What would you say to such a young, curious mind? Okay, so I give this um, advice uh, very often because I'm a mentor in the uh, uh, DBG. So the, and they just contacted me again this year. I always tell them um, to be 
just sticking to what they like, which seems very mm. easy. Yeah. It seems to be very complicated. Yeah. I had um, a student recently who was uh, really, really good. He was afraid that he would be too uh, fundamental for for the industry or for jobs. And um, one day said, well, I found this this ad and, and what they're offering is, is exactly what I like. And I said, so what are you waiting for? And he said, well, I, I wasn't sure. I said, well, what are you not sure about? So people are sometimes very insecure. So do not be insecure when you find something where you have the feeling this might be good for me. And I think I like the topics these people are working on independently mm -hmm. of where, where they are. Just go for it. Yeah. Really try. Because the instinctively you're going to see by the first contact with the organization, whatever it is, you're going to feel if this is good for you or not. And they're going to feel as well if you are good for them or not, normally, in, in, in many, many, many cases. Yeah, yeah. So just go for it. Yep, absolutely agree. One other thing I would like to ask you is about your activity in the Association of Supporters of the IPF. So the IPF is the Institute of Polymer Research in Dresden, in Germany, and you're still active there. Uh, what exactly is this organization about? Yes, the Association of Supporters of the um, IPF, um, I have been doing because um, we've had a long time relationship with this institute at BSF. And when I was asked, I thought it was um, important to help young people to get um, some visibility. Mm -hmm. You could do it for any any research institutes, but it just happens that this institute is uh, very good. And we uh, updated the, the, the presence in internet to make it a little bit more visible. So scientists from, from the EPF who will um, do a PhD or a master or some sort of project that mm -hmm. They can be um, applying to um, what we call what we have a prize every year, and then um, in fact the project's uh, evaluation is running right now. Um, and so we just looked into it with the, uh, a group of, of scientists and uh, decide on who's going to get the prize. And they can, with the money, they can um, go to uh, specific conferences or you know just do whatever they feel is is right with the. With the money they get cool so mm -hmm. still still entangled a lot with physics and polymer physics and science in general yes a little you know not so much um as uh, of course in the past but i'm just keeping an eye on on things but i do like <laughs> science that's something that doesn't go away cool that is a <laughs> that are perfect last words for for this podcast yeah. and this episode <laughs> okay perfect Valerie, thank you so much for this uh, insightful talk into the world of industry and academia and the mm -hmm. bridge in between. was was very interesting, very exciting hearing your story. Um, thank you. Thank you Good. so much. I'm glad if I helped. Okay, yeah, have a good day. <laughs> you too. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's it for today. If you have any questions, just let me know in the Spotify comment section below or simply reach out to me either on LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. As usual, one final disclaimer in the end. The best thing about this podcast is that it is about you and everyone can participate. 
So if you want to share an exciting story about your science, your academic life, some crazy experiments or any other nerdy stuff you're interested in, feel free to drop me a short message. Thanks for tuning in. Take care and see you hopefully soon on the next episode of Your Friendly Physicist and Other Nerds.